Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. Real estate heir Robert Durst has been investigated for the murders of three people, including his first wife, who disappeared in 1982 in New York. Durst was the subject of books, movies, Law & Order episodes, and the award-winning 2015 HBO documentary, The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, in which Durst spoke to the filmmakers. He belongs to one of the richest families in New York City. Might be a little eccentric. I think Bob is very smart. I mean, he's managed to get away with three murders. Why did he do this? No one knows. Why was he dressed like a woman? No one knows. The only witness left alive to even talk about it is Robert Durst. Do not tell the whole truth. Nobody tells the whole truth. That documentary series not only told the story of Durst's past, it's having a profound effect on his future. The FBI arrested Durst for the murder of his longtime friend Susan Berman on the night before the last episode of The Jinx aired. In that episode, Durst is confronted with a crucial piece of evidence, a letter he'd sent to Berman, a letter the filmmakers had obtained and turned over to police because of its similarity to an anonymous letter about the murder. Durst's murder trial is set for January, but in pretrial maneuvers, his lawyers tried to convince a Los Angeles judge that the case against him is tainted by corrupt ties between police and the filmmakers, saying the filmmakers collaborated with investigators more than 30 times. But the judge ruled against them on Wednesday. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Lori Levinson, a professor at Loyola Law School. Lori, the judge said this was an issue of first impression. Will you explain the argument that Durst's lawyers made? Well, this is the first time a judge has seen exactly this type of argument. Durst's lawyers are arguing that basically the producers of the show were working for the police and that they don't have a separate journalist privilege for being an independent journalist, and therefore that they should be able to give all of the research material and background and outtakes that the producers have. The producers are saying, no way, we didn't work for the police. We may have cooperated, but that doesn't mean we lose our news reporter privilege. So I've been involved in making documentaries about crimes and murder trials, and you often interview police or even get information that couldn't be presented at trial. But was the making of the jinx different from that? Did they go a little further? Well, the defense is claiming, Durstler claiming that this was all basically collaborative between the police and the producers, that the filmmakers, in order to make an, you know, a winning documentary or, or movie, needed the police's cooperation, and the police were relying on them to get information that they could use in the investigation and prosecution. Judge Mark Windham said that Durst had not shown that the production company became so entangled with L.A. law enforcement that they should be treated like government agents. But can they still use that theory at trial to challenge evidence like the letter that the filmmakers found from Durst to Berman? I don't think that they'll be able to use it to challenge the admissibility of the evidence like the letter. What they will be able to use it is in cross-examining anybody who takes the stand to see what their relationship was with the filmmakers and what their motive was and whether they might have actually taken things out of control or even created evidence in order to promote both the film and the police effort. In the final episode of the documentary, Durst goes into a bathroom, apparently unaware that he's still wearing a microphone, and he appears to confess to murder. Here's part of that. 
You're all right. This is the bath. There it is. You're caught. Is that confession admissible in this case? Are there any problems with it? Well, it's, you know, probably admissible because nobody forced him to make that statement. He wasn't being interrogated. He made an offhand remark. He just doesn't realize or he didn't realize at the time that he was miked. It wasn't wise, but it doesn't make it illegal. My big question, however, is how much is it worth? Because Durst is an odd fellow, to put it mildly. And he could be just saying, look, I was saying things they didn't mean anything. This wasn't a confession where I sat down and said, here's who I killed and here's how I killed them. And that it's just being taken out of context. So he didn't realize that he was still miked, which has happened to a lot of people. But he seems so careful in this that it seemed odd that he wouldn't know that. Well, it does seem odd. I mean, he didn't realize it was a hot mic, and he sort of muttered, there it is, you're caught, killed them all, of course. And again, he will try to say, you know, this was just sort of play acting, or I was frustrated, or I was confused. It'll be up to the jury to interpret it. I I think for Durst, one of the hardest things is actually Durst. Different people react to just his presence, and some people get a very cold feeling by seeing him, and others don't. Now, that shouldn't determine a murder case, but the courtroom is theater, and he's part of that theater. Do you think Durst is likely to take the stand in his own defense since he's already said so much to filmmakers on tape, and he testified in his own defense at his last trial? It's hard to say. It's absolutely his choice. I can imagine that his lawyer is saying, this is very risky for you to take the witness stand. They have so much ammunition, including those taped, uh, the statements during the taping, to use against you. But Durst will do what Durst wants to do. He was acquitted in 2003 of the murder of his neighbor in Galveston, Texas. Does that indicate that he might actually be believable to a jury? Well, he might be. In fact, a lot of people shake their head and say, how do you get acquitted in a case where you admit you chopped up the body? Um, But he argued that he acted in self-defense. So obviously he has a compelling story when he gives it. And he has a very, very good lawyer. Tell me a little bit about his lawyer. Well, his lawyer, Mr. DeGaron, is known as somebody who goes all out, very zealous for his client. And even if his client is not that credible, DeGaron believes that he will be in front of the jury. How difficult will the case be for the prosecution? Sum up the evidence they have. They have to trace events dating back to the days of disco. Right. This isn't a slam dunk case. The prosecution does have a lot of compelling you know, uh, circumstantial evidence, which is every bit as admissible and useful in the courtroom. But what they have that is particularly compelling are the letters where you have the same misspelling on the Beverly Hills. They have, again, Durst's statement during the filming. We have his motive. And then they traced all of his actions to show that he likely was in Los Angeles when the death occurred. This has been described as an execution-style killing. Will Durst's past come up to show that he's capable of that? The prosecutors will try very hard to get his past in, to sort of say this lays the groundwork for why he would commit this crime. We're not simply saying that because he might have done bad things before, even if not convicted of them, he did them again. But here is somebody who has a pattern of behavior. And so I think they'll try to get it in. How much the court will allow, we'll have to wait and see. Did you watch the series yourself? 
I watched portions of it. I certainly watched the portion where they had this outtake of him making these remarks. And, you know, again, I think that in itself will not win the case for the prosecutor. I think that it's less than the misspelling of Beverly on the envelope, but every single part matters. So looking at this, and I know this is a hard call, but which side do you think has the advantage in this case? Well, I think the prosecutor has a lot of strong evidence, but they also have the burden, and the burden is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And especially here in Los Angeles, we have seen cases, and I need I remind anybody no, of the famous OJ one, where people had DNA, and it came back with an acquittal. So even though I think the prosecutors have done a tremendous job of investigating and interviewing and finding everything they can, in the end, they don't have a video of this crime occurring, and some jurors might demand that. It's going to be a fascinating trial, and we'll talk more about it. Thanks so much for coming on again, Lori. That's Lori Levinson. She's a former federal prosecutor, and she is a professor at Loyola Law School. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.